Amen. All right, so as a church, we are studying 1 Thessalonians. This is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonians. And when he wrote this to them, this is probably his first letter of all the different ones. He wrote Corinthians and Colossians and Philippians, like most of the New Testament. This letter he's writing to them, and it involves a lot of encouragement, a lot of excitement, a lot of celebration, and that's in contrast to some of his other letters that were filled with a, a lot of rebuke or defense whatever it may be. This one has a different tone to it. And as we look through this, uh, we, this is week three right now. So the first week, there was a lot of reminiscing, and then we see this in chapter one, and then we get to chapter two, and he begins to talk through the ministry work, and we, we associated that with marks of his faithfulness, characteristics and traits of faithful work, work unto the Lord, and what that means for us. Well, today, this, this same kind of conversation, it's, in chap, it's, it's labeled in chapter two, but the same conversation about faithfulness is at work, but it starts to change in this, I'll call it a nuance. There there's, tends to be a little more forthrightness, almost a defense of his ministry, addressing these different, uh, what's likely to be concerns that were brought up about him as a apostle and a leader and the work that occurred in Thessalonica. And so he's reminding these Christians that uh, he's reminding them of what actually occurred and taking them back to it. In fact, the language, it shifts a, a lot in which he's probably addressing what the, if you recall, the first week we read about, we read from Acts 17 when the church gets started and there were the ones who were like the members of the rabble, right, the phrasing there, the rabble rousers, and they go and they chase Paul out. Well, it's likely that group and a few others who were pretty accusatory about Paul after he had left, telling the church, this young church, hey, you know, Paul, he's not preaching the word, he's making stuff up. Paul, he's, his motives are wrong. Yeah, he's just in it for the money. You know, Paul, he's like, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just in here. And so the, Paul, in this portion of this letter, actually addresses certain things that if you're wondering, well, why is he bringing this up? It's probably because there was some sort of accusation about him. And so the tone shifts from reminiscing and celebrating and then just all the, the, the wonderful, uh, faithful work that occurred to then a little bit more of defending. And it brings me back to this topic, and we'll circle back near the end, but Proverbs speaks to when we are to defend and when we are not to in, in, in a little bit. These, these two verses, they're back to back, and I find them to be a, a great mystery of our faith. Listen to these out of Proverbs 26. Verse four says, don't answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become a, as foolish as they are. You're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next verse, be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. And there we have the great dilemma of our faith in which wisdom much must be employed to determine when do you speak up and when do you shut up? You know, when do you defend and when do you let go? And when should you do this? And we see this in Paul's life in this moment. He feels inclined to address this. He did not always. In fact, others that we look to, their life and their ministry, namely Jesus Christ, during his arrest and his trial with Pilate, he wasn't really given full answers uh, in the way that you might suspect him to. And he went to the cross and, uh, and he died. And, and you might be saying, Jesus, why didn't you defend yourself at any point in front of Pilate or on the cross? But he didn't do any of that. 
But here you have Paul. Paul is defending himself. And I think there's, the reality is every day, you and I, we face these moments in which the Holy Spirit prompts our heart to either speak up or to stay quiet, uh, particularly when it comes to um, areas in our family, uh, in our marriage, or with our kids, or uh, in the workplace, or in school, maybe in this community, sometimes with legislation. You know, when do you say, ah, I, I really think I need to speak against that, and when do you let it go? Stuff like that, right? So we all deal with this. Well, we get a little bit of a picture of how this can play out in Paul's life from this letter, okay? So we'll come back to that near the end, but for now, let's look at 1 Thessalonians 2. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Turn uh, to 1 Thessalonians, super tiny book. If you need to use the table of contents in the beginning of your Bible, do so because it's just, it's hard to find if you're not familiar with it. Put a bookmark there so it's easy to find. And we're gonna start in chapter two, that's the big two, and then the little nine, all right, is in the middle. It says, don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. I love this about Paul. He knew that when he entered this city, he was going to a town that did not have a Christian presence at all. And he didn't want there to be any obstacle to the gospel. And so he's a, he, he didn't want there to be any uh, accusation of pretense or what are his motives. Is he just preaching so he can pass the hat around at the end and like feed himself or like what's happening here? And so he is explaining to them and reminding them how he was working during the week and what we know from Acts 18, actually the next chapter from the story in 17, what we know is uh, in that he did some tent making work as needed to fund ministry. Now, I love this mindset because it's this lifestyle he exhibits that we try to as well in which he is saying, I'm not here to get something from you. I'm here to give something to you. And he did that. He gave them the message of salvation found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone and the work that he did on the cross. And we also know from Paul's other writings that he received outside fundraising help as needed. In fact, uh, again, uh, the, the, the church plant story occurs in Acts 17. But if you were to be looking at Acts, and then you go back a chapter to Acts 16, you'll see that he is in this town called Philippi. Back home, we call it Philippi, so it's super confusing when I say the name back in West Virginia. So, <laughs> but in scripture, and everybody else in the world calls it Philippi, and in Philippi, he's there, and they're doing ministry, and all these people come to know the Lord. And if you recall, that's the story where Paul and then his buddy Silas go into jail, and they're arrested. But then this earthquake happens, so the, the jail doors open up, and the chains fall off them, and the jailer's like freaking out, and they, uh, they lead everybody, like all these people, to, to the Lord. Like that story. Well, one of the people who gets saved in that immediately before they go to jail was a woman named Lydia. So she was like super rich businesswoman. She knew God, but she didn't know Jesus. So they explain who Jesus is. She gets saved. And <clears throat> then she likely finances much of that church plant and also the funding. That's a lot of backstory to read what we're about to read. But I wanted you to see this because I love the story. Sometimes we read scripture and it just feels like uh, random Bible stories. But this was a real guy, Paul, and together, I like, guess, a team, Silas and Timothy. They did this ministry. They moved around in Macedonia. You know, it's not very relatable here. This is mountain town. Over there is like Mediterranean town, super different cultures. But... They did, you know, they're real people. So I love the story here, and we were able to use these ancient letters to allow us to piece it together. So listen to Philippians 4, 
When he's writing to the, to the church in Philippi, he says this, as you know, you Philippians, you were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want to receive a reward. I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. In that case, he's likely talking about a spiritual reward for their kindness. Verse eighteen: At the moment I have, uh, or at, at the moment I have all I need and more, I'm generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with uh, Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so this is just one of those unique moments where there's an overlap of the stories. Paul, he was in Thessalonica. He did some work. He labored. He also had some funding from the church he had just left because they had to escape. Well, escape Philippi? I don't remember. But he left Philippi and then, and then he goes into Thessalonica here. So Paul's ministry was funded by these other means, and then there's all this suspicion, right, about his motives by the, what we know is like those of the rabble. They're saying, hey, his motives are wrong. He's in it for the money, right? Like that's likely an accusation because he's specifically addressing, I'm not in <laughs> it for the money. And so he's, he's explaining that he worked hard so there could be no suspicion about his motives so that they could listen freely, no distractions to just say, who is Jesus? What is he about? What did he do for me? Why did he die? Why did he resurrect? Why is he returning? What is this all about? Paul was able to talk about that. And, and, and the strategy was fantastic. It led to great fruit. The church got started and flourished. Well, what's it have to do with us as a church? Well, one takeaway is this approach that we are not here to take something from people, but to give something to them. You know, we live in a community that historically uh, was ravaged by like uh, authorities outside of this town to take land and homes and property to, to make a park. Now, that didn't affect several of us here, me included, who moved into the area, but others of you, that is literally your family's story or good friends that you know. And so there's an element where there's a, 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 an understandable distrust of people who are saying, hey, you, you know, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? This is one way you're living. Jesus calls you to live another way. And there can be kind of a, a resistance to anything that would call us to um, that which would be, I'd say holy, but just say different, you know, from their, from their point of view. And so it's so important for us as a ministry to consistently, particularly when we spend time with those uh, who just live deeply within the hollers and the mountain, to spend time with folks and say, listen, we are here. You don't have to give us anything. Like, so here's firewood. Do you need it? Yes, free of charge. Here are gifts at Christmas time, from presents for your kids to supplies you need, like bed sheets and toiletries. Just take it. We want you to, like, this is a gift for you. Uh, maybe it's other stuff that they need, but these are gifts for you. This has always been a passion of ours as a church. And not because of humanitarian aid, but to say, hey, in the same way that Jesus met us and with a need that we had, we are here to meet you. Jesus brought that to us. He, he carried the burden. He is not um, asking of us to, to pay toward that stuff. 
And it's in the same way, we want you just to receive this. And when we give that, we, we can convey to people, we're not here to take something from you, but to give this to you. And um, this gift that Jesus gives us is a gift of salvation, to have peace with God. And it's free uh, because Jesus has already paid it all, but it does cost us our belief and our, uh, our pride. We gotta give that over to him and walk in humility. So that's, that's one uh, one takeaway, and, and along these lines, since, since we're talking just on like the, the value and the importance of spending time with our community, you know, like our town has about 20,000 people, although I know several of you, you kind of live outside of Green specifically, but our town's got about 20,000, like 2,000 affiliate with some sort of religion, uh, not necessarily Christianity, and then another like 18,000 or so don't, there's like not real, they, 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 outwardly mark on the census that they are not followers of Jesus Christ. So the majority of this town, right? Like overwhelming, 90% of this town. And as I think about that, you know, who is it that God's going to use to help our friends and our neighbors and our community know who Jesus Christ is? Is he gonna just send like Billy Graham from the grave? No. Is he gonna send uh, another Mother Teresa? You know, from, from, no, he, he's gonna use us. That's why he put us here. And so look for these opportunities to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to our community. Uh, that's, what, that's why we're here. Otherwise, we could all be other places. So there we have verse nine. Let's keep going. There's a little more we'll, we'll get dig into. Uh, there's a few different sections. I'll stop at each one. This is, we got a, another section here starting in verse 10. It says, you yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his children. We pleaded with you and we encouraged you and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and his glory. You know, from this we can assume perhaps there was a, a uh, accusation that Paul was harsh and it's kind of stirring the rumor, and they're all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he did kind of push us a little hard. He, he coached us a little too, too intensely. And so he's right, he's saying, no, no, I was like a father to you as children. We, we looked, last week we saw that he said he was like a, a mother to, to a nursing baby, and this week he's like a father to children, but specifically with certain verbs here that he mentions. I like how the, the English Standard Version, it says he exhorted and he encouraged and he charged you know, but we read the words pleaded and encouraged and urged. He drilled into them who God is, what God has done for them, what it means to be kingdom people. He didn't just preach the gospel and then move on. He urged them to live holy and honorable lives for God's glory and for their good and for the church's witness. And, and it's it, based on all the writings and everything else he wrote, he probably the same kind of messages to everybody where he's urging them, hey, listen, it's not good enough for you just to wear the badge of Christ followership in which it looks good on the outside, but, but you, gotta, you gotta actually know God. You gotta live this way. You don't just, just say, yeah, I go to church sometimes. You gotta live this way day in and day out. It wasn't optional to say, wear the name of Christ and then live like the old man, but instead, let the old man stay dead and live like the new man who is alive because the Holy Spirit is alive and at work and empowering you. So along these lines of, of this language here about being called to share into the kingdom and glory and live the life 
that is honorable and worthy of the manner in which we've been called, I wanna give you a similar exhortation, and that is that the King of Kings has called us to share in his kingdom and his glory. And we have to resist the temptation to become so consumed with the trinkets of this world when future glory is awaiting us. We are kingdom people, but we tend to act like toilet people. It's like taking my kids to Massanutten and then they just wanna play in the parking lot with the gravel. I mean, rocks are cool, but we're not here to play with rocks. We're here to go and enjoy you know, the actual experience. And when the affairs of this world consume our heart, we miss out on the joys and the promises set before us. So Paul would have exhorted them in this way. Press on, stay focused, watch God work in your life and through your life, and that's what really matters right now because life is short and you don't know when he's returning and or you don't know when you're gonna be called home, right? Well, it continues, verse 13. He wrote this, therefore, and whenever you see therefore, you know, always think about it. Like all that was just said was leading up to this moment. Now we're, now we're transitioning. He says, therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, which I love, it's his message, you didn't think of our wor- words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. Right? There's this active ingredient in scripture for those who are followers of Christ. It's like taking, uh, I don't know, uh, a Tylenol and then it works in your system and you can start to feel it kind of like, you know, do its thing or whatever drug you could replace with that, I guess. And you just, you, you notice that that thing that you take, the, it's at work within you. Well, God's word is at work within you. Reading it, studying it, reflecting on it, praying through it, none of it is ever in vain. Sometimes it feels like it is, but I don't know, in my experience, honestly, life's so intense. Not in a bad way, but it's just, it just is. There's a lot of stuff going on that uh, every single time I read it, it's like Gatorade as if I've just been running a marathon. Like, I just need it. I'm, just, I'm taking it in. It's so good. It's so necessary. So let's remember that God's word is active. It's at work. It's like a nourishing meal to our body. It works in our hearts. I've been reading through this book on Elijah by Chuck Swindoll, and he wrote this, I was just reading it yesterday actually, and then this section on the Bible came up, and I thought, oh, it's fantastic, I'm preaching on that tomorrow, I'm gonna use some of that. And he wrote this, he said, the Bible is God's inspired truth. It is wholly trustworthy, for God is trustworthy. It is our sacred guide, written for our instruction. But it is not some kind of rabbit's foot we carry about, hoping for good luck. It is to be read intelligently, interpreted carefully, treated respectfully, handled wisely, and applied correctly. Because God's word is so important, friends, what is your spiritual diet with it? Are you enjoying God's word? Are you eating it? You know, we wouldn't starve our bellies, but we tend to starve our soul. And I wanna encourage you to be as diligent with the spiritual nourishment as you are with all the other things that you crave. And some are healthy cravings, some aren't. But just how you act in the physical, apply that in the spiritual. Another, I got a whole bunch of like metaphors. I just, I was on a roll. But another one for you, I laugh only because it's like, okay, I just, I don't know if I'll use this in the next service. But, 
We wouldn't, we wouldn't put butter in our gas tanks, right? You guys have these sweet cars. You're like, oh, I got this truck I saved up for. Yeah, you, would, you wouldn't put butter in that. But when it comes to the fuel for your soul, we put garbage in it all the time. We, we feed on and we allow things to just uh, really uh, emotionally and spiritually feed us from the things we're watching, the things we're giving time to. We totally ne- neglect the Bible. We put it down when we get home from church. And then we wake up on Sunday morning the next week and it's in the same spot, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, listen, you wouldn't do that in any other area of our, of our lives, but we do that with God's word. And so I wanna encourage us to be reminded of the value of its active and living work. Some of you may have started a, uh, with good intentions six weeks ago, uh, how to start the year with a certain reading plan. And now six weeks has just gone by real fast. Well, start again this week if you need to. And allow yourself to intentionally and faithfully, I, I wouldn't even say read God's word, I'd say enjoy it uh, for what it really is. Verse 14 continues. This is the, oh, there's a little more here, but this is, uh, this is when it, it shifts. He, he mentions this a few different times throughout this entire letter, this kind of language. So this isn't the first time we've looked at this yet, and this won't be the last But he says this in verse 14. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. Friends, why does persecution still surprise us? It still takes me by surprise. In a conversation of having somebody and they're kind of like, well, they're just uh, harsh or mean regarding my faith. I'm just like, huh, yeah. I don't know, wasn't expecting that. Or what we might see overseas when there is uh, intense persecution of an entire Christian village or town or a church if there's a bombing or whatever. why, Why does that surprise us? One of the most important reminders for us is that our Savior was killed. And to put it very simply, he was a great guy. He literally healed people and fed them. I mean, of all the people to kill, why him, right? They they yelled crucify him when it came down to it. Not only Jesus, though. John the Baptist was killed. Most of the disciples were killed. Many of the early church, they were physically killed. If you knew that your faith would get you executed by the state, would you still believe? Would you still walk the aisle to receive communion or get in the tank to get baptized? I'm not sure if we would. Over 2,000 years, adults to children have been killed by the millions for their Christian faith. And all these deaths have occurred across different groups. So this wasn't relegated to just the people groups in the islands, the Pacific Islands. This isn't just something that's in the Middle East. You have kings and emperors and dynasties and presidents. They have spanned different languages and cultures and geographic lines. This isn't just a North Korean phenomenon. This is a global historic reality for our faith. We worship a man who was killed. We follow a faith that was and is and will be persecuted. Our heritage is that of a persecuted people. So why does it still surprise us when it happens? Again, from mockery at the workplace to a literal earthly death. From being fired at your work 
to legislation that restricts our faith while celebrating the belief system of others. So why does it surprise us? One reason might be because while we are kingdom people, we allow the flesh to convince us that we are of this world. And reality is we tend to love this world. We love what we can obtain in this world. As Jesus told his disciples after he washed their feet, he said, hey, don't be surprised when they persecute you. That's in John 15, 20. If they hated him without cause, they will hate us without cause. And I don't like it, right? I don't like that that's a reality, but it is. For me, I'm not a Christian because it is easy. I'm a Christian because Jesus is worthy and this world is not my home. Now let's, let's keep reading here. Verse, verse 15, the second half of it, it keeps going. It says, they failed to please God. This is talking about the, the persecuting Jews. They failed to please God and they work against all humanity, which is a fantastic phrase. Paul's equating, just sharing the gospel, the value of it that it has on humanity. And he's like, the, the, the obstacles that are placed in front of the gospel being spread is actually negatively affecting all humanity. But he continues, he says, as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of the salvation to the Gentiles, by doing this, they continue to pile up their sins but the anger of God has caught up with them at last. All right, this is the end that we'll, we'll finish with this morning. That little section here reminds us that we do not want to find ourselves in opposition to God, especially being someone who gets in his way from people who are preaching uh, the gospel. God is very uh, fierce in ensuring that his plans and purposes happen and nobody can stop them. Whether this is Pharaoh, or whether this is Goliath or King Darius that we looked at this summer, and then within like history after the Bible was written, you have Nero, you have Hitler and others. God will magnify his name and if you're in the way, he will remove you. Our God is a vindicating God. He gets the final say. Sometimes on this earth, he will get the final say and we all look at that and go, whoa, yeah, he removed that person from power. Other times, it will happen at the end of time. And so, you know, I know it's the Super Bowl Sunday. Some of you are wearing your jersey underneath your coat or something. Well, if you're gonna wear a jersey, wear the one of Christus Victor. He's the one that wins in the end. He's the team you wanna be on when it comes to all these things of our world. So, there we have Paul's defense for ministry among the Thessalonians. And I think we are most challenged if you were to summarize this and then a little bit in conjunction with last week, you could pull these together if you really wanted to. We're challenged to ask the question, you know, when do we stand up for Christ and when do we, oh, I'll say wisely, you know, prayerfully say, now's not the time to address that. I've been in both cases. I've been in, in, in those situations, through, I mean, throughout my life. Sometimes it's with my own family members sitting around and saying, is this the moment you know, at Thanksgiving? Are we really gonna do this right now? <laughs> are, we, are we gonna throw down about this issue about what God says versus somebody's just totally ridiculous living? Like, are we gonna do that now? Other times it happens in school. Goodness, that was always a delicate question. I was a TA one time and like the, the, uh, the teacher and then the students start talking about Christianity and they're totally wrong. I was the only, like, I'm the one that should be referred, hey, Adam, what do you think? No, I just, 
sitting there thinking, if I say something, I'm gonna usurp her authority. And even though it was so cringeworthy to hear these kids talk about uh, their, uh, their faith, I was like, oh, maybe I'll catch a time. Oh, the Lord must not want me to do this because I'll catch a time after this class to talk with the ones who really are sensitive and, and like sensitive to the Spirit's leading and want to hear about it. I didn't have a single conversation follow-up. It still like lingers. I'm wondering, like, should I have said something? You know, and that was a long time ago. Um, but then there's these times when you do stand up, you do say something. They say something about who Jesus is, and I just like, you know, that's actually not uh, who Jesus is at all. No, we don't have evidence for that at all. Usually it's the other way. They'll say, you know, we don't actually have evidence for Jesus doing that. And I'm like, yeah, we do. <laughs> we, have a lot. we have a lot of evidence that he did this or that. And my, so my prayer for you as we look at this, Paul here, he is defending his ministry. He was called, he just dove right in, preached in the synagogue, let, it, let the chips fall as they did. Some people were angry, but a bunch of people believed. Some of them were Jews who believed, which would have like helped been part two, right? They knew the Old Covenant and the Old Testament, and now they're like, oh, this is, this is the Messiah, this makes sense. Others were Gentiles like I am, and we're like, oh, I don't, I don't know, I never even heard of Jesus. It's not part of my upbringing. Jewish culture is not, so I, I'm just hearing this fresh. Well, Paul did that, and same for us. My encouragement is I think about this town specifically, although I know we're kind of spread all over, some in Charlottesville, some up in D.C. and everything like that. A bunch of you are watching online. But my prayer for us is to, just to be attuned to the fact that here we have a town, 90% or so, like, I'm not a, they're not believers. And, and if they are, they're, they're just kind of like, uh, they, they can wear a legacy hat, but it, that's about it. Like, they're not actually followers of Jesus Christ. They just wear a hat that says Jesus saves or something. But I, I'm firmly convinced that God wants to use me and you in this town to be the messengers of that gospel. And for us not to get lazy on that and then just rely on, I don't know, outside graduates from Bible schools to show up and like pick up the slack that we didn't do for a generation or something like that. What would it look like for us to be super faithful and diligent in that and really watch him transform? Uh, so Leo alluded to it a little bit, but I think about with both what Leo said and then also just some conversations I've had with others in our congregation recently. The enemy likes to trick us because of, uh, because of rules within our workplace or just the, the track record in our family of what you do at holidays and when you gather. We tend to get tricked to think, you know what, I shouldn't just bring this up. And then we take it one step further. Probably people don't really wanna know. Probably this isn't gonna be helpful for them. And I wanna push back on that and just say, we live in a town where hopelessness is, let's just say, an all-time high. I don't, I don't know. I don't, haven't, you know, haven't lived here 500 years. So I don't like know the span. But hopelessness is rising all around us. You see it in the eyes of people. You hear it in conversations with people. And what better people to explain and help people through that than those who are followers of Christ. You have the hope of Jesus Christ residing within you. And rather than an answer that just works on the physical or the emotional or the financial or the relational that can help people through their moment of despair and said, hey, hit them right with Jesus Christ. Give them the hope that sits within you and, and watch, watch it work, like the word of God and watch it work. 
And that's my encouragement to us this morning. Uh, Maddie, how about you and the team? Every time I say Maddie, I always look at Michael Benz. I do this every week. It's <laughs> like, Maddie, where are you? I can't see, because everyone's wearing plaid, so it always blends in. And then I'm like, yeah, Michael. Let me, let me.